I was uh, talking with Patrick when I first came in. It's like, I need to come visit you guys more often than just on those days when I'm preaching. Um, it's, I love connecting with you all. Um, it's made a little more difficult by the fact that we live out in Sumas and so, and already drive in once for church service in the morning, but uh, I am really glad to be here with you all this evening. So uh, the sermon title, as you might have seen, is... Um, it's for all nations, bringing the margins to the center. And I have to apologize for that because uh, you might have come here, you might have been misled thinking that this would be some kind of like a, a multicultural uh, tutorial on Microsoft Word formatting or something like that. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love a good Microsoft Word tutorial as much as anyone else, um, but that is not going to be our topic for this evening. But, you know, since I brought the topic up, you know, let's go there. Not to Microsoft Word specifically, but more so to the idea of margins more generally. So if you were to ask a random stranger on the street, um, you know, what they think about margins, in response you might get A, like a weird look, or B, you might get a, a response like this. Margins are just that blank space around a page, right? Nothing particularly interesting about them. Their main use just seems to be to sort of keep the words on the page from you know, falling off onto the table, perhaps to give people a spot to scribble a note in, to um, you know, note down what they're reading or thinking about at the time. And in this sense, I think margins can actually be some of the most interesting of all spaces. What's written in the margins can give us a window into what's really going on in people's minds as they interact with the text. I don't know if you think about uh, biblical scribes very often, maybe about as often as you think about Microsoft Word formatting, um, but you know, they were those people who really kept the biblical tradition alive through the Middle Ages by, by hand copying um, text after text, uh, these, these books of the Bible. Uh, monks, usually, who would do this in their monasteries. And you might imagine that uh, these scribes were sort of like human Xerox machines, copying text after text by hand, but they were also people with unique personalities. And where that comes through is, uh, you might guess, in the margins of these texts that they were copying. So scribes used the margins of these texts that they were copying for all sorts of things. Sometimes just to highlight a passage for later reading, but other times for doing some deeper ponderings, like the fellow who slipped this existential philosophical speculation written into the margin of a biblical text that he was copying. He said, this is so sad. Oh, little book, a day will come in truth when someone over your page will say, the hand that wrote it is no more. It sounds like the life of the party there. Um, but some, some of the time, though, the scribes just used the margins to vent, like the medieval equivalent of Facebook. So huddled in these cold, drafty rooms, hunched over, peering at texts, copying them onto blank pages day after day after day. I, I mean, you can hardly blame them. They would write things like this. These are actual marginal quotes from biblical scribes. Uh, so, quote, this, oh, that's a hard page and a weary work to read it. Or, the parchment is hairy. Or, thank God, it will soon be dark. <laughs> or, 
the very simple but relatable comment, oh my hand, <laughs> or everyone's favorite marginal quote, well, that just happened. Okay, that's actually, that isn't a real marginal quote. But that is like my favorite social media post of all, just like a total without context, well, that just happened, and expecting people to respond to it. No, the margins are where the action is sometimes. And when it comes to humanity, the margins are where God tends to put much of his intention, uh, much of his interest, and much of his care. God loves marginal people in a special way. And that can sound kind of like a controversial statement, can't it? Like, doesn't God love everyone equally? Isn't it a bit scandalous that he would pay special attention to one particular group over another? And yet, Jesus can somehow say, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who are poor, you who hunger, you who weep. And he can follow it up with, woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed, who laugh now. Certainly there's some context needed for statements like that, but we can't just explain and contextualize and rationalize all of that away. There's a scandal hiding in plain sight in the pages of our Bibles. In verse after verse, story after story, grand theme after grand theme, we can see God's preferential care for the poor and the marginalized. And Jesus' actions at the temple in the text that was just read are like a big exclamation point on that repeated refrain. So let's look at a few key points related to this. First of all, about the temple. It was unquestionably the center of Israel's religious and cultural and political life. The temple was like a national cathedral, a capital building, and a national museum all sort of rolled into one. And it's very much tied to the legitimacy of whoever was running the country at the time. Uh, So that's the main reason that Herod the Great had started his extreme temple makeover project several decades before Jesus was born. He, He had essentially rebuilt the temple on a bigger, grander scale, assuming that it would go a long way towards kind of solidifying Uh, his dynasty. It's also why the Romans, when they got tired of uh, sort of all of the Jewish revolts that had happened against their their rule, it's why they invaded Palestine in 70 AD and they went straight for the temple to, to knock it to the ground so that not one stone would be left on another. It was much more than a building that was used for religious purposes. It was a symbol for Israel as a nation and for her supposedly privileged place as the people of God. The temple was to be a city on a hill, a place that would draw the nations to God's presence, a place of justice and righteousness and peace. But over the years since it had first been established, systems had grown up around it, which limited the access of certain groups to the temple. People who had no real social standing, who couldn't advocate for themselves were being excluded from participation in this central aspect of Israel's religious and social and political existence. And so, as you probably know, the temple, as Herod had designed it, it had four successively smaller courts, like Russian nesting dolls inside of each other. And so, the innermost of these courts, the one that surrounded the temple building itself, was the court of the priests. So you had to be a a priest cleared to minister in the temple to go in there. 
And a step out from that was the court of Israel, also called the court of the men. So men who were ritually pure could enter that deep into the temple complex. Further removed from that was the court of the women, which you might guess is where Jewish women were allowed to congregate and to, and to pray. And finally, the outermost of those courts, furthest removed from the temple itself, was the court of the Gentiles. That was the only place on the temple grounds where foreigners, where non-Jews, and those who were considered impure could be allowed. It was in that court of the Gentiles that vendors had set up shop, exchanging money, selling sacrificial animals at inflated prices to people who had traveled great distances to worship at the temple. This courtyard, which was supposed to be for God-seekers and God-fearers from outside the people of Israel, for marginal folks who were um, wanting to know what this whole Yahweh thing was about, this courtyard had become a zoo. It was not a place of prayer, not a place where an interested seeker could come and approach God. Instead, it had become a place of distraction and exploitation. And this was indicative of what was happening on a bigger scale to the whole temple system. It had lost its way. The priests running the place were mostly concerned with holding on to their own power, making sure that the system benefited them rather than those on the margins. As N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd say in their book, The New Testament and Its World, the temple had come to symbolize the injustice that characterized the society on the inside and on the outside. It appeared to have rejected the vocation to be the light of the world. It was the city set on a hill, but instead of drawing to itself all the peoples of the world, it was bent on manning the barricades to keep them out. So it's in that context that Jesus, in the final days of his life, shows up in Jerusalem with an entourage and a bunch of fanfare about being this Messiah King, finally come to claim his throne. And what's the first place that he heads? He goes to the temple. But he doesn't go to the temple to be anointed king or to offer some priestly sacrifice or something. He goes and he starts chasing people out, as our scripture reading indicated. He starts to drive out the people who have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles, who've turned this holy place into a marketplace. And he does this, I believe, largely because they've created a system that ignores or that actively oppresses the marginalized. And that system extends from the temple out into the rest of society. I mean, now come on, you might say, I get that God wants us to care for the poor and stuff, but was that really the main reason that Jesus you know, took this huge step of passing judgment on the whole temple? Wasn't it mostly just because they were buying and selling stuff on temple grounds and kind of desecrating the place? Well, here's the deal. What does Jesus say as he's performing this highly symbolic action or or more to the point, who does he quote? It is written, he says. So he's referencing God's word there. And when a teacher does that, you need to listen not just to the exact words that he says, but you also need to listen to the whole context of the passage that he's referencing. And in a single compound sentence, Jesus brings two prophets into the discussion with him, two biggies, Isaiah and Jeremiah. My house will be a house of prayer, Jesus says. And there he's calling up Isaiah 56, which Eric read for us a minute ago. Isaiah 56 in its whole context is about two key groups, eunuchs and foreigners. 
Two groups who are the definition of marginal. Two groups that have good reason to question whether or not they are welcoming God's house at all, whether or not they belong. Eunuchs would have been excluded from worship at the temple. There were passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that specifically forbid eunuchs from entering into the assembly. And yet, in Isaiah 56, which we heard read, we see this shocking passage. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the same goes for for foreigners who have dedicated themselves to the Lord, says Isaiah. A non-Jew would have been excluded from entering the temple, but Isaiah says this, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So this temple, which was seen by so many as as sort of a national symbol of a single nation, Israel, was, according to God, it was supposed to be a place where all nations, all nations were welcome, a place where their sacrifices and offerings would be accepted. But the temple system that had developed over time had turned into one of exclusion, of drawing these sharp lines between who's in and who's out. And yet here is... Jesus, quoting Isaiah, who in his day had said some really shocking things about the sorts of people that God wanted near himself. Okay, what about the other prophet that Jesus quotes? What about Jeremiah? Well, Jesus says, you have made the temple a den of robbers. And that's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, which was a message that God gave to Jeremiah to be proclaimed at the gate of the temple centuries before Jesus came on the scene. So stand there and say this, God said to Jeremiah. Essentially, the message was, hey Israel, don't you think for a minute that just because you have a temple and you have some religious practices that have been developed, you have some rituals here, that that it somehow means that I, Yahweh, am on your side. That's not what following me is all about. That's a rough paraphrase. And then in that passage, we see three key groups of people in Jeremiah 7. So in Jeremiah 7, 5, the message to Israel is is this. If you really change your ways and your actions and you deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, then I will let you live in this place, in this land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. So stop oppressing the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So three groups, again, at the margins. Three groups that lacked power, that couldn't speak for themselves. Three groups that were prone to exploitation and oppression. Jeremiah goes on to say, if you're going to live lives of oppression and adultery and idolatry and then think that you can make it all better, by following some prescribed religious rituals? Well, think again. And then in verse 11, the part that Jesus quotes, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So Jesus, as he stands in the temple, which is, again, it's the religious and cultural and political center of of Jewish life, he speaks a single sentence which 
condemns the current system at the same time that it evokes in his hearers all kinds of thoughts of people and the, at the margins, the poor, the fatherless, the widows, the eunuchs, the foreigners. So he's bringing the margins right into the center. And he's saying, what about these folks? This religious system that you've created, it is worse than useless because it excludes these people. It pushes them to the edges of your society, sometimes over the edge. And so Jesus says, I've come to change it. I'm going to tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. The temple I build won't be made of rock or brick, but of living stone. The temple I build will have room for the margins. And so the religious authorities, of course, can't handle this. They are shocked, they are threatened, they are scandalized, but they shouldn't be surprised. After all, Jesus is the man who has been bringing the margins to the center all along the way. He is the one who tells stories about good Samaritans, the one who touches lepers, the one who eats with tax collectors, the one who welcomes children and says crazy things like the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Jesus is the one who tells a story about the kingdom of God that goes like this. There was once a man who prepared an incredible feast and he invited a whole lot of guests, but those guests refused to come. They must have had something better to do. So he sends his servant out with these orders. He says, go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. This is going to be the weirdest, most scandalous guest list ever. Bring me the people who are the neediest, the sickest, the least respected, the least likely to be able to repay me. Those are the ones that I want at my party. His servant obeys, but then we find out there's still room. So what's the master of the banquet say? He says, go out there again, go further afield, go into the countryside, bring them one and all because I want my house to be full. In a way, we can see Jesus' clearing of the temple, not just as a symbolic judgment on the whole system, which it was, but, but really as the host making room for a party to happen in his house. It's time to go, guys. My friends are coming over. We need to make some space for them. So, church, here is the deal. We are the temple now. Not just you lettered streets, but but all of us, Jesus followers, collectively, we are the temple. We are the new temple made of living stones, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And just like that temple in Jesus' day, our courts can get clogged with stuff that blocks our view of what it is that God intends the temple to be. Now, over the years, we can, without realizing it, become a place where the margins are forgotten rather than attended to where those on the edges are pushed further away rather than brought to the center. And this can happen for a lot of reasons, but I want to point out just one right now because you have to start somewhere. I think that one, big, one of the big pervasive things that blocks compassion for those at the margins is a scarcity mentality. Scarcity mentality. So it boils down to this. It's the idea that if I make room for those folks back there, then it's going to cost me something. It might mean that I don't get where I want to be as soon as I'd like. Somehow, by, by creating space for those people, it'll set me back. 
It's a classic playground situation with, with two captains picking teams for their game of kickball, and no one wants Ned over there. Like, he's hopeless. He's a disaster. He kicks the ball the wrong way. When he's in the outfield, he's chasing grasshoppers instead of trying to get the other team out. He's going to bring all of us down, right? Some of you know that I have been working for the last several months, uh, as Kim announced, with a, with a Christian organization called World Relief to see if we could feasibly open an office for resettling refugees here in Whatcom County. And as part of that work, I've had to do a lot of contacting people and uh, various stakeholders and just sort of explaining the idea, what the need is, what the structure of it would be, how it, how it would all work out and so forth. And, and many people are really, really excited about it. It's neat to see. But I also catch a huge undercurrent of this scarcity mentality running through a lot of my conversations. You want to bring refugees to Whatcom County? What's that going to do to our already crazy housing markets? What about the job market? What about the homeless? What about young families who are trying to make their way in the world? Who is this going to hurt? Who loses in this situation? I think those kinds of questions can easily enter into our churches as well. What will happen if we start to draw those sorts of people toward the center of our church life? How will that upset this perfect system that we've created, that we like, that we're comfortable in? Who's going to lose? And yet, from page one of our Bibles, we are greeted not with a scarcity mentality, but with a liturgy of abundance, as Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls it. And this is just an aside. If you have time tonight, go home and Google uh, Google the myth of scarcity, liturgy of abundance, and just about a 15-minute read. It's an article that's well worth reading. So we see from Genesis 1 onward this liturgy of abundance. We find a God with unlimited resources who at the core of his being is a giver, a creator, a lover. As he speaks the universe into existence, he says again and again, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And then he commands all that he has made to bear fruit and to multiply. There's so much fruitfulness and multiplying going on that God has to take a break. He rests from it all. And he calls on us to do the same in thankfulness and recognition of that great abundance. This is the God who turns an elderly couple who's incapable of having children into the father and mother of an entire nation. This is the God who feeds that nation with manna in the desert and water from a rock. This is the God who takes a few loaves and fishes and feeds thousands with it. I believe if we begin to bring the margins into the center of church life, if we welcome the stranger and make room in here for those who are out there, that we will begin to see this myth of scarcity crumble. And I pray that the watching world will take note of this, that they'll be curious about what sort of a generous, gracious God it is that we serve. There's enough. There is enough. If God has called us to, to welcome those at the, the margins, the foreigner, the widow, the fatherless, the impure, what have you, then he will provide the means for us to do that. Who loses? No one. No one loses. Our God speaks galaxies into existence. He creates life out of nothing. He has set a table for a party, and he wants his house to be full.
So, along with Jesus, let's do the work of making room for those who will come. Would you pray with me? Generous God, we thank you that you have invited us to your table, that you have made room for us, Lord, because at one time we, too, were on the margins one way or another. You called us in. You set a table before us. You invited us to sit, and you laid out before us more than we could possibly imagine. Lord, help us not to try and hoard those things for ourselves. Help us not to cling to them, but give us open hands. Give us hearts that desire to invite others. We know that there's still room. We know that your call is for us to to invite those on the outside, those at the margins, to come and to join us at this table. Give us the courage to do that. Enable us to follow you in all things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.